Good morning. Nice to see all of you uh, gathered together to worship this morning and uh, sing and remind ourselves that uh, Christ is our hope both in life and in death. Uh, something taken from the Heidelberg Catechism, if you're not aware of where some of the lyrics of that song come from. If you got your Bible with you, go with me to the book of Genesis. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 22, and if you don't have a Bible and you don't have uh, with you or you don't have a Bible app on your phone, there are Bibles that are in some of the uh, chair racks there in front of you, so if you'd like to follow along with us in one of those Bibles, feel free to grab one of those. Genesis is the first book of the Bible, and so if you're unfamiliar with where to find things in the Bible, uh, Genesis is that very first one, and you can just kind of page your way forward until you find Genesis chapter 22, which is where we are going to be spending our time together this morning. Jesus' brother, James, warned us about 2,000 years ago that we are going to encounter trials of various kinds as we move through life. Now, that may seem like an obvious statement because you have likely encountered, encountered trials as you move through life, but trials still often take us by surprise. Trials take us by surprise because we struggle to reconcile the circumstances that we are experiencing in our lives with what we know to be true about the God that we trust. And and Jesus' brother told us this because the trials are not just difficulties that we face like everyone else faces, but they, they sometimes bring about a crisis in our life, be, lives beyond the difficulty. You see, the, James tells us that these trials can bring about sometimes what he calls the testing of our faith. If you have lived long enough, if you have followed Jesus long enough, then there have been times in your life where trials have actually brought about a time of testing of your faith. It, it makes you question the goodness of God that we've just been singing about. God is good. God is good. It makes us, makes us question those things. It makes us wonder if God is, is actually worthy of being trusted, if He would allow us to find ourselves in a situation like this. When we experience these trials, it brings about a testing of our faith. And oftentimes, perhaps many times, that trial takes the form of something that we love being threatened, something that we care about very deeply, either the threat of that thing being taken from us or the actuality of that thing being taken from us. Your health, your hopes and dreams, somebody that you dearly love. The threat of something like that being taken from you or the actual experience of that thing being taken from you is a 
testing of your faith. Because in the threat of that thing being taken, God is often asking us a question, do you still trust me? Can you still follow me even if you don't have that? Abraham and Sarah are a couple that we have been looking at for the past several weeks now, and I think it's safe to say they have experienced a, a, a great number of tests of their faith, but they have not yet experienced a test of faith as difficult as we're going to see them face in the passage of Scripture today in Genesis chapter 22. If you will, look with me. Genesis chapter 22, and we'll begin our reading in God's Word, beginning in verse 1. Genesis 22, 1. The Word of God says this, After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, he said, here I am. He, God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, And go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now many of us are familiar with the Bible, but if you're here this morning and you're not familiar with the Bible, you're like, whoa, (laughs) I did not know that was in the Bible. This is a horrifying request. One that we struggle to even make sense of on many levels. It has troubled not a few people who have read this account because God is asking of Abraham the unthinkable. And the language of the text really drives it home for us because because the language of the text, uh, God says, take your son... Your only son, the son that you love, and offer him as a sacrifice in the land of Moriah. Abraham has been waiting 25 years for this son. And the Bible doesn't give us any indication of how old Isaac is at this point, other than the fact that he can speak. Other than that, we don't know how old he is. But Abraham has waited 25 plus years now for a son. He's finally received that son, but but not only has he been waiting for it, this son, but all of the promises of God, all of the covenantal promises of God are contingent. That is, they depend on him having this son. I mean, God's told Abraham... Look left and right, north and south, east and west. All that's going to be yours. It's going to be filled with your descendants. In fact, you're going to have so many that they're going to be like the stars of the sky or the sand of the seashore. And he's got one right now. And then God says, you know what? I want him back. We wonder how Abraham is going to respond to this. In verses 3 and 4, tell us that Abraham gets up early with Isaac, 
He takes two other young men with him. He takes the materials for the sacrifice, and he is on his way. And one of the, one of the strange things about this text, or one of the interesting things about this text, is that we have this, we have this conflict, right? God has asked something that, that we would say is almost immoral of him. He's asked the unthinkable, and the text gives us none of the internal dialogue of Abraham. It just tells us that, that Abraham uh, receives the word of the Lord, and the next morning he gathers up the stuff, and he's on his way. The Bible doesn't, the Bible doesn't tell us any of the conversations that he have, has with Sarah about this. She's not even mentioned. Can you imagine that conversation? God spoke to me again, Sarah. Here we go again. What did he say this time? I'd rather not say, but we're going to be gone for a while. They probably, he probably had the discussion with her and explained what God had explained to him. But the Bible doesn't tell us any of that stuff. It just delivers to us the, the overarching pieces of action in the story. We don't see Abraham conflicted or wrestling. We don't see any dialogue. We just see Abraham obey. So look with me now at verse 4. On the third day... Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. So still, the, the details of the story are painful for us because we see that this is not a short journey. This is, it's taking them three days to get there, three days for Abraham to ponder what he is going to have to do. And then as they're walking with the materials, he actually gives some of the materials for the sacrifice to his son to carry. Now, Abraham carries himself, as I've said, with, with a sort of calm that is inexplicable for any other reason other than perhaps that he knows what we've been told from the very outset. The very first verse tells us God is testing Abraham. God's te- this is a test. And Abraham seems to be keenly aware that this is a test. In fact, his confidence about this is so certain that he tells the young men who have gone with him up to this point that he and his son are going to be back after they've worshipped. And the, the, later on the Bible, the New Testament gives us a little bit of insight into the strength of Abraham's faith in this situation, which is frankly staggering. The Bible says this in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 17, by faith. Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So what the New Testament is basically telling us here is that Abraham walks into this situation with, 
with such confidence that he knows that even if God calls him to go through with this terrible act, God is able to, re- to bring this child of promise back from the dead because Abraham has learned now through the experience of his life that God does impossible things all the time. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. So, now, back in Genesis chapter 22, you feel as if you're reading the story that the author of the story just twists the knife deeper with each paragraph, heightening the tension. Because now, what we're going to see is is Isaac, in these verses, speak for the very first time. And the words that Isaac says here are the only words that Isaac says in this whole story and the very first words that were ever given of him after his birth. Look with me at verse 7. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. Just reading that dialogue and reading that exchange is painful. You can imagine Isaac walking along and speaking to him, saying, my father. Abraham saying, my son. We don't know what kind of conversation that Abraham and Isaac have had up to this point. We don't know exactly how old Isaac is, as I've said. But Isaac is there taking an inventory of all the things that they're going to need for what they're about to do. And it's very obvious to him that something is missing. And Abraham, and we don't know, we don't know what he actually believes about what he's saying. But Abraham tells Isaac that God is going to provide the lamb that they need. And the next section is the hardest part. Look at verse 9. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. So everything leading up to this, this whole process, it takes an excruciatingly long time. The place that they're going to perform the sacrifice is a three days walk away And then when you get there, there's all the preparations and things that have to be done when they arrive at the spot. But Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Verse 10, then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. 
But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, as he had said before, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Now, I don't want us to sit in this for too long, but I want you to try to feel the pain that Abraham is feeling in these moments. I want you to feel the pain that Abraham must have felt as he built the altar and then stacked the wood and then binds his son and lays him on the altar. If you have a child, I just want you to think about how that would be unthinkable for you. I then want you to look and see the trust in Isaac's eyes. As Isaac looks at his father and wonders what his father, whom he loves, is doing. The drama of this story is brought to its absolute height as Abraham raises the knife. But the moment before he brings it down, God stays his hand. And he answers, as I said, in the same way that he answered when God first spoke to him. When he calls out Abraham, Abraham, he says, here I am. And the angel tells Abraham, in essence, the angel of the Lord tells him that he has passed the test. Now, did God need to, to see this to know? Of course not. When God tests his people, he is not looking to find out information that he does not possess because God does not, there is not information that God does not already possess. This test is more for Abraham than it is for God. And Abraham demonstrates his faith as the angel of the Lord tells him that he says, I know now that you fear God since you have not withheld your only son from me. The Bible goes on to say this then in verse 13 of 22. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram, caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Abraham names the place where this crisis has been averted. He names this place Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. And in the remainder of the chapter, the angel of the Lord repeats all of the covenant promises that he had given to Abraham so many times as we've read on numerous occasions that these 
covenant promises have been repeated to him, and Abraham receives a reminder and reassurance of these covenant promises again. And that's the end of the story that we see here in Genesis chapter 22. But I want you to know, the interesting thing about this is that this would not be the last time the Lord provided a sacrifice on Mount Moriah. You see, there's something interesting being foreshadowed here in this text that we've just read. If we fast forward centuries later to King David, the nation of Israel has been established. It's governed by a king. David has has created a, 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 a home for himself, but as David looks around at the, the home that he has built for himself, he realizes that he needs to build a temple for the Lord whom he loves. And while the Lord does not allow him to build that temple, he gives that responsibility to his son Solomon. And so David spends the rest of his life gathering all the materials together to build a magnificent temple for the Lord. And do you know, when Solomon begins that building project, do you know where he chooses to build that temple? I bet you can guess. 2 Chronicles chapter 3 and verse 1 says, Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. Many years later, centuries later, God's temple, where sacrifices would be offered day after day, would be built on this very spot. Here, God's presence would be manifested. A, A temple is a place where God chooses to manifest His presence in a special way. Obviously, God is everywhere present at all times, but the temple represented a a special place where His presence was manifested and where God's people could make offerings for their sin. You see, Isaac had asked about the sacrifice and Abraham had assured him that the Lord would provide the sacrifice. But here's the thing, even as this sacrifice looks forward to a time when Solomon would build the temple of the Lord on Mount Moriah, we see that the sacrifices being offered there still aren't enough. Even the sacrifices that are offered in this magnificent temple, though they are what God required of His people and they were His gracious way of allowing them to deal with their sin, every time a sacrifice was offered, it pointed to the need for another sacrifice. All of, the, all of the blood that was spilled in the sacrificial system called out for Jehovah Jireh to provide again. And he did. The main truth I would like us to consider this morning is this. From the mouth of Abraham, but true for us today, the Lord will provide sacrifice. One day, 
Jesus would enter Solomon, not Solomon's temple, but the rebuilt temple after its destruction. He would clean the money changers out of it. He would sit in it. He would teach in it. He would, he would walk those very steps where Abraham had been willing to offer his own son. And there are multiple parallels here in this story as we consider the fact that the Lord is going to provide the sacrifice. There are multiple parallels in this story that we've just read in Genesis chapter 22 that point forward to the work of Christ. Parallels that we can't miss. I'm actually going to share six of those parallels with you. Number one, like Abraham... God, the Father, offers His only Son. You probably didn't have an opportunity to notice this as, because we didn't read the story in just one sitting. We, we read it in chunks and there were different verses that we left out. There's a phrase that appears in this story three times that you might want to highlight or underline in your Bible in some way. That phrase is the phrase, your son, your only son. And that phrase appears in Genesis chapter 22 in, in verses 2, 12, and 16. That phrase, your son, your only son, appears. And that phrase, your son, your only son, is a way of heightening the tension for us of, of what God is actually asking of Abraham. It heightens the tension as we see Abraham grappling with giving up his only son whom he loves. And then we see Jesus appear. And at Jesus' baptism, the Father speaks a word over him. He says, this is my beloved son whom I am well pleased. And then in John chapter 3, in verse 16, the Bible tells us that God loved the world so much that He gave His only Son. You could plug your name into that verse if you wanted to. God loved you so much that he gave his only son. Second, like Isaac, Jesus is innocent. As I've said, we don't know how old Isaac is when this story takes place. But the author of the story gives us a, a little glimpse of that innocence coming through as he's walking side by side with his father, inquiring about where the sacrifice was going to come from. Now, of course, we know that Isaac is not, is not perfect in his innocent. No human being is perfect, but, but Isaac is being presented to us in this story as an innocent sacrifice. He's, he's being brought to the place of sacrifice, having done nothing wrong on his own. 
And in doing so, he points forward to the ultimate innocent sufferer. The ultimate innocent sacrifice, Jesus Christ, who never sinned in thought or word or deed or motivation, but lived a perfectly sinless life. The third parallel I'd like to point out is that like Isaac, Jesus is obedient. I've pointed out that one of the remarkable things about this story is Isaac's compliance. If we were to, were to put ourselves in his shoes, I'm not sure that compliance is what you'd be getting from me. I'd be running off into the wilderness and hoping I find something. But what we see here in this story is Isaac submitting himself to his father's will at every turn with no hint of struggle. And in this, once again, he points us forward to Jesus. The author of Hebrews is quoting from Psalm 40 when he applies it to Jesus in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 9 where he says, in the words of Jesus, Behold, I have come to do your will. Philippians chapter 2 tells us that Jesus takes on human flesh and becomes obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Like Isaac, Jesus is obedient. Number four, like Isaac, Jesus carries the materials for the sacrifice. Remember what we read in, in verse 6 of Genesis chapter 22? Isaac is not simply a bystander all, along with this. He is actually given the wood for the sacrifice to carry to the mountain where he is going to be offered. And the Bible tells us that Jesus also carried the wood for the sacrifice that he would make. In John chapter 19 and verse 17 it says, And he, Jesus, went out bearing his own cross to the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Number five. Like in the story, God provides a substitute. All along the way, we see Abraham working with this quiet confidence and even when Isaac inquires about the location or the whereabouts of their sacrifice, his father assures him that he is going to provide the lamb. And that is exactly what God does in our story because they look and they find a ram whose horns are caught in a thicket. And the ram, as a sacrifice, is a substitute for his son. The Bible presents the sacrifice of Jesus as a substitutionary atonement, a substitutionary sacrifice. The Bible, the Bible speaks of Jesus' sacrifice as the just for the unjust, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that we could be brought to God. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross 
is, is the Son of God standing in the place of sinners and receiving the just punishment that we have earned through our sin, though He has done nothing wrong Himself. He is our substitute. He receives God's wrath so that we can receive God's grace. And that's why when John the Baptist saw him coming, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Those are five parallels or similarities between the story of Abraham and Isaac and the story of the cross. I said I was going to share six with you. But the sixth is different. I've been saying, like in the story, we see this. But in the sixth place, unlike the story, the father does not spare the son. At the last moment in our story, Abraham is given a reprieve. The angel of the Lord calls out to him and prevents him from going through with it. But when Jesus is lifted up on the cross, there is no last minute reprieve. He could have called down a host of 10,000 times 10,000 angels to deliver him from that sacrifice. He could have delivered himself easily with a thought from the cross. But as Jesus is nailed to that cross, and as that cross is, is, is pulled up into place, and as he is lifted up to be scorned and mocked and spit upon by the crowd, there is no voice from heaven. There is the pained voice of the sacrifice. My God, why have you forsaken me? Father does not spare the Son. What the Bible said in Hebrews chapter 11 is also true. As we look at Abraham's faith, Abraham believed that even if his son was somehow sacrificed in those moments, he would be able to receive him back from the dead. And the glorious truth of the gospel is that through the power of God, the Son is raised from the dead. And then the Bible wants you to answer a question. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 32, it says, He did not, who did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Now I want you to put that question 
in context for a moment. Because some of us are struggling at times with bitterness because God, it feels like God hasn't given us all things. There was a thing that I felt that I desperately needed, and so I prayed really hard for it, and you didn't give it to me. Or there's a thing that I desperately want to keep, and you allowed it to be taken. When the Bible says, will he, if, he's, if he's graciously given us some, will he not also give us all things? It's not saying that you won't endure difficulty or trial. Okay, Jesus modeled that for us. His brother told us to expect it. So trials are going to come. And when, when the Bible says that, God, that God's going to give us all things, it doesn't mean that whatever I dream up, God is obligated to give me. What this verse is telling us is that if you don't have the thing that you desperately want, or you lost the thing that you had, or God's timing is not your timing, you don't need to have your faith or your trust in God broken You just need to remember the cross. If God wouldn't spare that, if God the Father was able to hear, why have you forsaken me and say nothing, then what what good would he withhold from you? We don't have all that we want and we don't get to keep all that we have. Yet God assures us that all things are ours in Christ. So, how ought we to respond to that? I've got a couple ideas. First, If you're with us this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, I just want you to think about the sacrifice of Christ on your behalf. I want you to consider the fact for a moment that it is your sin, our sin, humanity's sin that holds him there on that cross, as we sang this morning. I want you to consider the fact that God gave his only son so that sinners could be saved. And then I want you to find forgiveness at the cross. If you will, where you are sitting this moment, cry out in your heart to Jesus right now, he will hear you. If you repent of your sins that that brought about the death of Christ, he will forgive you of those sins. He will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. He will give you hope for a future. He will give you every good thing you need. For those of us who are Christians, how do we respond to such grace? I think that we ought to respond the way Abraham responds. Three times in the text, two of them when God is addressing him, God speaks, and Abraham says what? 
Here I am. Here I am. All I am, all I have, my health, my hopes, my dreams, the people I love, everything. It's yours. The Bible tells us that God also calls us to make a sacrifice. Romans chapter 12 and verse 1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Thank, thank God He's not going to call on us to offer our children. But then there's a way in which He is going to ask us to give us His children. and ourselves, and our hopes, and all those things that I mentioned before. He says, you give those things to me as a living response to the grace we've been given. And because Jesus, God has shown us so much grace in Jesus Christ, there's nothing he can't ask. And there's nothing that it isn't our pleasure to give. So we respond to a passage of Scripture like we've just read. We ask God to give us the faith of Abraham. Say, here I am. It's all yours. That's easier said than done. So let's pray. Let's ask God to give us that faith. Lord, we have read a difficult portion of Scripture today as we've considered a really challenging story. But we are amazed at the way that the Bible is woven together in ways that we maybe have never even seen before. We are amazed at the way that you have woven together the whole course of human history. And Lord, what we are most amazed by is that you would give us your only son whom you love. I pray that that sacrifice for us would bring us back to a place of trust. That it would increase our love for you. We would love you because you have first loved us at such great cost. Lord, we want so much to hold on to everything we have. But you've told us that the way of Jesus is a way of sacrifice. So Lord, we pray that you would help us to answer, here I am, all we have is yours. And trust that you will, with your Son, graciously give us all things. It's in the name of Jesus I pray this. Amen.